Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your mostly weekly, largely weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. This is episode 80, recorded on the evening of Thursday, November 2nd. This is iPhone Eve. It's a very exciting day, and um, I'm joined here in the studio by Matt Welch, editor-at-large for Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan, national correspondent, HBO's Vice News Tonight is someplace else doing doing other projects of some sort. But Matt is here in the building. Damn right. Anthony Fisher is at the controls doing various things, our, our frequent regular collaborator. Uh, how are you, Fisher? I'm doing very well tonight. Thanks, excellent. To, thanks for having me. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I'm very excited, very excited, and I'm very excited because... Global treasure, not just not a mm. national treasure. Mm. Because he, mm. he, he doesn't originate from mm. here in the states, but he is he is an icon, an, an intellectual Keep it type, coming. Keep very it good going. friend. Yes. I'm starting to detect and sarcasm. Recently, no, no there's no, no, sarcasm. no sarcasm. I love, no sarcasm. No, I love just, me some is, Josh Saps. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Now, now, the fact that Moynihan's not here does that make me uh, in Moynihan's role? Because uh, far be it from me to <laughs> to such a level. We don't we don't, I don't try to descend to fill that. other people's shoes so much. Well, there's um, one but thing tonight, that, but tonight, oh, I think we, there's a bug flying. That's in here. This is just the Josh Saps show. Then I'm not. I am not Moynihan. This is this is my. This is there's already one thing that you've done that. I can't imagine Moynihan doing, even if he were to do something like invite people to his house right. for drinks, which, which is, is that you came up and you poured five very neat glasses, methodically uh, uh, in your approach, of uh, Hendrix and Tonic. Well, I listen here. to this show yeah. really frequently good. and uh, people send you things. And so I, I texted Camille before the show <laughs> and I said, I do hope that there's listener bourbon. And he said, there isn't, but there's gin. So I went down uh, and I just got in from uh, New Hampshire where I'm currently living. We were just talking, uh, Matt and I, earlier about the, the fact that I have new twins. See, this is uh, this is amazing. And, and, and Baby twins. I mean, they are like literal flesh bubbles that eight, just eight vomit. Weeks. And uh, Yeah, eight weeks, and they and they, they shit a lot, and they vomit, and they do <laughs> so you things. you abandoned two del- delightful, delicious... To be here with you. Olds. To be here with you, you and drunk. with the dear listener. Wow. And so when, the, when it turned out that there was Hendrix on tap, I thought, well, mm-hmm. why don't I go down, do the right thing, go to a little bodega in New York City, of all places, get me some ice, get me some tonic, get me some soda water, and please, you delightful people. It's the ice. Is there anything uh, wrong with that? That's the ice. No, I mean, it's, it's I'm ice, just saying like that actual glasses, Moynihan, usually paper cups. I'm just trying to think through Moynihan. Well, no, he'd be here ranting about some <laughs> leftist <laughs> philosophy that he had. He he's actually usually brings beer though, not usually, but he's brought beer in the past. We're That's calling, happened. We're calling Miller point. beer now. I'm just saying he's done that at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, James Lockhart is the. Uh, we're still enjoying the the generous bounty that we reaped, or I reaped, when I followed him down into a basement at Cato. Um, was it was completely consensual, and he paid me in alcohol afterwards. And uh, for that, James, I am very grateful for this. Sounds a little spacey. Wonderful. Sounds a little Kevin Spacey. Bottle, uh, I don't know. He took you down there, and then it happened. Completely consensual. Um, and Kevin Spacey can't can't remember what happened. So well, completely he's, consensual. He's also. doing a lot of I'm saying that the James Lockhart thing was completely consensual with me. 
It was consensual and that well, he so only were, gave me alcohol and I didn't have to do anything. So were Kevin Spacey's uh, engagements. That they were consensual? That's that's the claim. That, now, yeah, the, the children happened to be children, uh-huh. but apart from that, it was consensual. Sometimes yeah. they were tall. That, that one who's kind of confused. Before we go all completely of, all of this into, is making into me so uh, sad. pedophilia uh, here, <laughs> um, Josh, since we're going to uh, Camille's, um, um, what do you call those things, Anthony? A baby shower. Thank you. Uh, since we're going to Camille's baby shower on Saturday. And you're uh, welcome to join if you're still here, Josh. You have I'm not, but thanks for the invitation. squirming uh, twins. What is the thing that you can tell Camille from the other side that Camille just doesn't know? Yeah. He has no idea. He has zero idea. He has negative idea. Mm-hmm. For context, What's, mm-hmm. I literally have 30 days left to go. Yeah. And, you know, Anthony. And maybe not. Anthony, I mean, maybe and, and I are all parents here we've occasionally tried to tell camille stuff like hey dude you really need a diaper decor it's like nah <laughs> you really uh, need a what diaper decor you know the thing that makes the diaper smell go away no one's told you this one no no uh, my no. suggestion was the nose frida which is where you suck boogers out of the infant's oh, that noses is very helpful they can't breathe at night without it and you won't sleep allow that. me to answer your uh, yes, wonderful you. question uh and by the way I'm the host of uh, the podcast, We the People Live, which was not introduced. But uh, if I'm you sorry. want amazing conversations <laughs> between me and interesting people, like Sam like Harris and like Richard Dawkins and yeah. uh, people such as Camille. That's true. We the People Live. Hashtag We the People, all one word. What do I tell the delightful Camille about the early weeks of fatherhood? I would say one thing. Everyone tells you you're going to be sleepless and it's going to be difficult. And you, you get that. I've like, you understand that, that yeah. right? Like, everyone know you, you know yeah. that. Yeah. What they don't tell you is, because I think the implication before you have kids is that it's going to be chaotic and it's going to be madness. And I kind of sort of already factored that in. I baked that into my assumptions that it, it's going to be, I'm going to come home and it's all going to be all over the place. I'm not going to know what to do with myself. In actual fact, in the early weeks of having a kid, what you get is not chaos, you get drudgery. You get sheer, just tireless boredom and tedium. Because when they're that young, they're actually not unpredictable. They're entirely predictable. Or they only have three settings. They're either pooping, or they're vomiting, or they're sleeping, or they're crying, four. four. So... Your life becomes just a, 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 a it's, it's not a roller coaster. It's a. You're Sisyphus. I mean, that's, that's. Well, yeah, sure. If you want to get all Latin or Greek about it. <laughs> yes, you're pushing a boulder up a hill that never gets to the hill. And Except then it rolls now down it's, and you it's have a, a shit filled diaper, yes. which is just perpetually filled with some sort of goo. So uh, what I would just prepare just yourself for awfulness. is, is uh, it's going to be drudgery. Mm-hmm. And also you're going to get nothing back emotionally, because I think that, <laughs> that, that once a kid is, you know, even just eight weeks old, they can start to sort of focus on you. They sometimes smile. This is what my kids are starting to do. You know, acknowledge your existence as a human being worthy of existing. Yeah. But in the first few weeks, they don't do that. They don't do that at all. They are blobs of flesh who look straight through you like the, just the, they can see nothing. 
of you. Mm. Nothing. They are gazing into the distant depths of the cosmos and they don't care about you. They don't know you exist. When you put the bottle up to their mouth and they slap it away with their hand, they're not doing anything <laughs> against you or the bottle or their hand. They don't know you exist. They don't know their hand exists because they don't know they exist. So it's just a blob of flesh and you are trying to do the right thing by it and it is totally thankless, intensely predictable and utterly boring. It sounds marvelous and magical, and I'm so glad that I've decided to embark on So on, on that this upbeat journey. note, you're welcome, Camille. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate that. I also appreciate, I appreciate you, uh, wife Tracy, and uh, daughter as yet unborn. I'm very excited about you coming. Like she's going to be listening back she on might. this in 20 years? She might. You yeah. have to do that. I mean, most of the stuff that we do here is legendary. Yeah. And it's also of great importance, mm. and people appreciate it. And I have no... I have no doubt about the fact that my wife, my daughter will appreciate these legendary dispatches. Um, as as and, daddy's and, knocking over the chin. This, this Hendrix-filled, never, never, not the Hendrix. The Hendrix, Hendrix is, Hendrix and Tonic, my very favorite beverage. Yeah. Very favorite beverage. We're um, being archived by the National Library right now, right? Yeah, Is, yes. that, is that what? Yeah, yeah. and they need to know this. Um, there are various things happening. There was a terror attack here in the great city of New York, a truck attack, actually. Um, there is a tax bill that's making its way through Congress. Apparently, the president has appointed a new Fed chair, but I don't really want to talk about that. There uh, were two different hearings this week on Capitol Hill with uh, various scions of Silicon Valley who descended upon Washington, D.C. to discuss uh, the ongoing perpetually unfolding drama with Russian interference in the election or just somebody paying for Facebook ads and rubles. Uh, in either case, they were there testifying. Um, all of these things are happening this week. I suspect we should get into all of this stuff because I'm very interested in your perspectives on these things. But where to start? Do we begin with the tax stuff? Do we begin with uh... I, this Facebook stuff? You understand it much more than I do, Camille, and I suspect Josh understands it more. Uh, uh, as well, but on a daily basis, anytime I turn on uh, TV, like I've seen Kara Swisher, who's you know a credible tech journalist from way back and Wall Street Journal on on MSNBC, going on in the really breathless tones, like you know they could micro target, um, we're using algorithms. Yeah, so uh, could I <laughs> on, on a cyber platform, uh, and uh, it. You know, the ads that are exposed potentially to 160 million uh, Americans. And like it's it's possible to present all of this information in such a way that sounds so terrifying. And then you just think for a half a second. No, wait, I've logged on to Facebook before. Like. If it was so easy to do anything to, to, to convince anybody in this country by putting by uh, putting down X amount of money on a social media ad platform, those ad platforms would be making a ton of money and there'd be a lot of people competing over the space. It really feels like that we are in a grip of like a combo panic. Like I think there's legit social media panic right now over the big four, the big five companies. And it's, it reminds me so much of like the early kind of nineties. Just when you put cyber or E in front of something, you could scare the shit out of anybody, you know, yeah. like uh, 
cyber porn's coming from here. All these like Time Magazine covers from 1997, like with a kid, you know, who's five years old staring at a blue screen. And my God, the porn is going to get, like leap from the magazine cover and actually eat him alive. Wait, is that going to do that to my children? <laughs> They're only yes. seven weeks old. Yes, man. it's already happening and you can't see because you have Amazon and Siri right now. But I mean, I think there's a uh, there's a, a legit like unhinged panic when mm-hmm. it comes to that. And like people are, are dissociating from their own experience. When's the last time you remember a Facebook ad? Uh, you know, when's the last time a, twi- but, wait, a back, Twitter I, ad I, buy I, did anything? I, I don't think the, the question is about ads. Uh, we all know that the amount of money that is being alleged that Russia spent on the campaign yeah, that is hasn't so changed. piddling. Roughly like $100,000 Yeah, it's nothing, right? And I've heard you guys talk on the podcast yeah. before about how ridiculous it is to imagine that in a campaign that costs billions of dollars, that mm-hmm. $100,000 is going to make any difference. But I do think that this is a little bit like picking the easiest of your opponent's arguments to knock down instead of the strongest one. I mean, you're, you're just plucking leaves off the tree of the uh, of the case against, about uh, Russian interference well, what's rather than getting to the roots. Not right? Russian so, interference, but let's – I mean, Russian yeah, interference this, this is one, kind of a separate yeah. uh, question that overlaps and informs the panic of it. But just uh, take it to the four social media companies hauled up in front of uh, Congress this week um, and people freaking out like we really need to crack down and regulate so let me, that, let, well, that thing. What is what is that thing? So in, let, let me, let me yeah. grant you that there's a lot of hysteria about the fact that it's new and there are a lot of people who don't know anything about social media who like, are thinking that like it's... Like the senators who are holding yeah, these exactly. hearings. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you, don't you remember like back in the day when they were talking about oh, the internet? It's not, it's a, it's not a series. It's a pipe. It's a series <laughs> of pipes. They, 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 they deliver it in other ways, but they want to deliver vast amounts of information over the internet and again the internet is not something that you just dump something on it's not a big truck it's it's a series of tubes and if you don't understand those tubes can be filled and if they're filled when you put your message in it gets in line it's going to be delayed by anyone that puts into that tube enormous amounts of material do you remember remember that it's a a, a bunch of tubes and the tubes got of course these people are like old white idiots who have no idea about anything we don't have to make it racial Josh I'm sorry do I have to make it ageist as well (laughs) sorry they're young black idiots uh, mostly (laughs) who are are talking about this but the the, but uh, I don't think that that um, accusing them of that actually undermines the, the the salient point, which is in a shareable world where people will click on things and share things as a result of the fact that they seem enticing or instantaneously kind of stimulating, you don't actually have to spend a lot of money. And you don't, it, it's not about people clicking on ads. It's about people being able to, it's about you being able to manipulate people's desire to share something that's sexy and interesting with each other. I mean, I'm married to a social media manager. We, I just, I literally just had my twins on Halloween featured on an article in some online magazine about how these gay dads are showing how (laughs) Halloween is done. And it was Neil Patrick Harris at the top. And then it was me holding my two doofus seven-week-old twins wearing (laughs) pumpkin outfits. And I had no idea that this was even happening, but it happens because my husband happens to know how to do those kinds of things. So it's not about the money and it's not about the the ignorance of, of politicians who don't understand how social media works. What it's about is, do we want people with vested interests from a potentially antithetical foreign power uh, manufacturing clickable and shareable uh, memes yes. that then go around... 
to yeah, it. And, yeah, and I'll we should start and we should answering yes. And, and please, let's, and let's please do, defend. And let's do a little context setting. I mean, we're talking the the Washpo article from earlier this week that described this entire situation, pulling from Facebook's written testimony, their prepared testimony. Um, as many as 126 million Facebook users may have seen content produced and circulated by Russian operatives. Twitter said it had discovered 2,752 accounts controlled by Russians and more than 36,000 Russian bots tweeted 1.4 million times during the election. And Google disclosed for the first time that it had found 1,108 videos, 43 hours of content related to Russian efforts on YouTube. It also found $4,700 worth of search and display ads. Now, that is sort of the narrow, specific scope of the problem. Um, I think one of the things that set people off this week is we went from the 10 million number that Facebook had originally said, I think it was back at the beginning of October, to 126 million Facebook users that may have seen content. Um, I think part of what is almost certainly confusing many journalists who are writing about this and many consumers who are consuming this news is that the amount of ad spend hasn't changed. It's still 100,000. What they are doing now is not only counting the number of ads, but also counting the number of posts that were generated, created. And I believe it was something like 80,000 or 800,000 different pieces of content, whether it's comments or uh, various other posts created by these pages. And that's how we get to the 126 million number. It sounds like a lot that doesn't include how many people interacted with those pieces of content. It also doesn't include, and I wish that these things would, because it would just be materially helpful, uh, say, uh, whatever, throw one of those numbers out. They created this number of posts, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so in a universe of how many posts in, like, the world, Yeah. right? Are we, ta are we talking about, is it, like, 10% of something, or is it... 0.000001% of something, and we can make some big numbers that sound big until you see the context of it, and it doesn't look big. Again, yeah. you, I feel like you're going back to specifics, and, well, and I, I admire and applaud uh, the, the one of the things that this show does well, which is to to, to tone down the hysteria of, of people who are reporting on things without really knowing about them, mm -hmm. and to say, hang on, is there actually any there there? But uh, let me just expand this to a, a bigger conversation about social media and and like the demos, right? Are you completely unruffled and unconcerned about the fact that in the future we are increasingly going to be getting our information and communicating with one another on social media platforms and that we haven't paid a great deal of attention to whether or not those platforms can be infiltrated by and manipulated by in very clever ways using algorithms and so on to by people who seek to disrupt the political discourse, provide misinformation, turn us against each other. It strikes me that that conversation is getting subsumed by a conversation about the details of this specific Russia hack. Sure. And, I, and in, I, in our zeal to kind of poke holes in the hysteria of the left, we're sort of losing sight of the bigger question, which is, is Facebook good for us? And, and, perhaps, and perhaps not to limit it to the hysteria of the left. I mean, there are yeah. plenty of conservatives who have opened, I mean, during the congressional exchange with this specific situation, and I'll, I'll expand to the broader uh, question that you raised. Um, they were asking whether or not we would know if North Korea was involved in purchasing these ads or various other um, uh, nefarious countries. Um, but to the broader question of whether or not I am particularly concerned about this. Um, I don't know that I'm concerned about it. Uh, and I don't know that I'm concerned about it because 
there's been a plenty of social science investigation as to whether or not to try to ascertain whether or not voters actually know much of anything about the country in which they live and the elections in which they're participating. Um, the fact that most voters um, in the past, and we've been studying this for 20 or 30 years, uh, haven't aren't aware of which party controls Congress. But they don't know but much that all beyond. The reason why, but, if you if you see no. a story about how uh, uh, someone who opposed Hillary Clinton turned up dead in a in a, a hotel room, that that would make you, if you're an, as as they say, a low information uh-huh. voter. Sure, wouldn't that make you more likely to be skeptical of voting for Hillary Clinton? Well, this is just it. I'm I'm not sure that it makes sense to get concerned about the specific new medium in which we're able to to push out content, especially if the prevailing narrative right now is that a lot of the things you're seeing online aren't trustworthy. Like, I don't know that there's any American that hasn't received that message. And even in the hearings, for example, the folks at Twitter were asked about specifically about these fake ads that were being served and suggested that most of the interaction that they were getting with some of these ads were people calling this out as that's fake, that's dubious, that's not trustworthy. Um, Are the you fact serious, is that, Camille, that you don't think yeah, that the platform the fact that is relevant? 60, I mean, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, fact, let me, let me fact, take it a step further. Like 60, if 60% of the people who see an article title are willing to share that without reading it, if most people, as I said, aren't aware of what party is in control of Congress, don't know anyone in government beyond the president of the United States. It seems odd to me that I would suddenly begin to get particularly concerned because we've gone from political ads on the radio or on cable no, television you're, you're, or broadcast you're, you're, you're television you're treating, to, to treating, ads on the you're, internet. You're treating as opposites something that I see as being kind of corollaries that have their their hands together, which uh-huh. is the idea of the media being unreliable. Right? You're, you're saying in an era in which everyone mistrusts the news, surely no one's going to have any faith in fake news. Mm-hmm. I regard those two things as being flip sides of the same coin. In an era, I mean. What you need to do is to get everyone to to not believe in legitimate news sources, and then whatever bullshit you throw at them, they're not going to totally believe that either. It's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, the claim is not that they see something in an ad on Facebook and then they think that that must be true. It's that you undermine their belief that there are any credible sources whatsoever, and then you throw enough sand in the gears that you you just gum up the whole system. And so they might as well believe this this crap that they're reading online as much as they believe the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, because they, you've undermined the whole the whole uh, the whole mission. Mm-hmm. Of of the news media, and I don't think you can you can rule out by saying that it doesn't matter about the platform. The platform matters immensely because the barrier to entry to feeding BS to people is now so low that anyone can do it. But also, the platform is so vast that manipulating it is, I think, a gargantuan task because it's a. You know, how many people connected to Facebook now is like two billion. But you people. don't need to manipulate it. This is a false. This is a straw man. You don't no, need you to. You don't the need to manipulate earlier. Well, no, I think. I mean, I was. I was. I was what, I'm what quoting you, back to you. I mean, oh, okay. That, well, I mean, maybe I misused the. Or maybe you're taking it out of context. But uh, the, I mean, the, the point is, I'm not saying that there is a that, that Putin is able to manipulate the entirety of Facebook. What I'm saying is, all you need is a small impurity to inject into the system. And if you've discredited the whole system, then that impurity becomes just as valid as all of the things that we've strived for hundreds of years to protect, like, an impartial judiciary have, and the have, principles uh, of journalism. I have a, a, a stronger faith, I think, uh, than you do of what happens when the demos 
gets its hands in stuff. It's going to be, you know, 90% of everything or 99% of everything is crap. Um, and so when everyone gets to produce their own news and commentary and share it, they're going to share a hell of a lot of crap and all this kind of stuff. But I have a faith and it's a faith. I, I, I will rapidly, uh, readily confess um, that even though it's going to throw off all of this crap, even though it's going to create more avenues, instantaneous avenues for spreading misinformation, even though everyone here is followed on Twitter by a whole bunch of accounts that are some randos name spelled badly and then like 7257. <laughs> and those are all Russian bots. Every one of them. This is a public reader uh, service, listener service. If you're getting engaging in an argument with someone who has four digits at the end of their Twitter handle, that is a Russian bot. And stop arguing with them. Just mute them or block them and carry on with your lives. But uh, I have faith that that practice ultimately creates things that are too big, not just to be like dominated, but to be actually even infiltrated in any meaningful sense compared to other things. And it eventually and not even eventually, it quickly uh, leads to more sophistication from consumers rather mm -hmm. than less. When you have three networks, when you have, you know, a handful of, of general interest magazines, I think you have more ability for specific trusted entry points to be corrupted by targeted people who are saying, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to get Reader's Digest. I'm going to get, uh, what was the criteria? What was the name of the magazine in the, in the 50s and 60s? If Moynihan was here, this is all he would CIA, know. CIA uh, Cold War stuff. It's great. You should, um, you should see the desperate way Matt glanced at me. Yeah. I'm, I'm just fail I'm failing him. in my Moynihan-ness. I'm <laughs> so zipsy and instead of Moynihan. Sorry, Michael. I readily acknowledge that you, that, like, yeah, it doesn't take much to get like a Twitter bot farm of a, a small number of people replicating and then sharing and having those people replicate and share a whole lot of bullshit out there. Mm -hmm. But it's also easier at the same time so, to correct bullshit in real time. I think that's and, true. And to build on uh, a better overall sophistication of sifting through news sources. And that faith carries me further, uh, I think, than, than the place that we're at right now where, what, the Twitter rejected its ads from RT in a showy movement right before... Uh, the the hearings this week, like okay, we know we're 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 kicking RT Russia Today off of Twitter because that's going to show them. Like this is it's so transparently like it has nothing to do with anything to do that. It's a bone to toss to people who are panicking about a Russia story. And there's elements of the Russia story. I mean, I hate Ruskies. If you listen to the show, you know that. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 Matt, let me let me just say one thing. I because uh, I know we need to wrap this segment. I completely agree. There's no and time I, limit. I share right. your I share your faith in the good sense of the of the mob, essentially, and that and that if you leave, then it is far better to allow people. She's getting shakier by the day, to be honest. I, 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 it is far better to allow people to to share whatever they want to and to and to read whatever they want to and to just trust that the end result will be better than any individual human being trying to navigate or dictate to them what they sh what they should be reading. However, I do believe that in 50 years time or a hundred years time, they will look back on this era of the fledgling evolution of social media. And they will say, it is a little bit crazy that they had no means of differentiating between truth or falsehood. There were, there were no systems in place that could, that could uh, dis not ban, but simply deprioritize right? uh, uh, claims that were clearly untrue online that there was no obligation on the part of the major social media companies to try to lean a little bit more on the scale towards actual sharing and engagement between real human beings and that that is being done for a political reason by a foreign power using bots. And so I, 
I, I take your instinct, but I, but I think in this particular case, we will look back on this and say, this is nuts. I want to be sure that, that I push back on a specific on a specific thing because it seems like a, a, a core claim. The notion that there aren't mechanisms for pushing back against things that aren't true. I mean, you know that there there are. I mean, there is a marketplace of ideas. There is content that's available online. Obviously, anyone can publish stuff to Facebook. But the question is, how do we adjudicate truth from falsehood on social when it comes to to people's posts or posts from organizations? And we have other mainstream publications that are pretty well funded and financed that are able to make determinations about this sort of thing. We have users themselves who can read. Um, and in many cases, some of the ads, some of the ones that were apparently the most popular, according to the Politico story that actually featured some of them, were like Satan versus Jesus. <laughs> and if Satan wins, mm. it, Satan says, if I win, then Hillary wins. And if I lose, then Trump wins or something along those lines. I mean, some of these aren't really claims about <laughs> truth and fiction as Josh raises his glass to in, in the is hopes of getting a refill um, or additional is, ice. This, is this what we're doing? Uh, <laughs> if, if you'll help, if yeah. you'll help. Bottom line, right. I think there are mechanisms for trying to adjudicate fact and fiction. I think they are pretty robust in many cases. Um, and I don't, I don't want to overstate the problem that we find ourselves with. And that's part of the reason why I think staying what, close to the, what's, what's actually happened. What, what is the risk that you fear in overstating it? Well, the risk that I fear in overstating it is that we actually get into Internet speech regulation, which right. is precisely right. what's been introed by this, this fair or it's Honest Ads Act, um, I, which, see, is, see, going see, actually, be, which I, is going to be policing who can purchase yeah, ads see, and whether actually, or not they can purchase ads. I actually think the solution... I think that's problematic. I think the way that we head off at the pass any kind of uh, infringements on the First Amendment is by dealing with the problem ourselves and not... Uh, being Pollyanna about it and claiming that it doesn't exist. Well, tell me, so, tell me what you mean by it. Who's the ourselves? So I, I'm look. I'm not an. I don't design algorithms for Google and Facebook, but very clever people do. Yeah. And there are ways that. So there would be markers, for example, about. So when you say like we are capable of of differentiating between true and false on online, it's like you're coming into Facebook assuming that Facebook is a state of nature that was somehow birthed. By by Gaia, and now faith, Facebook has just emerged from the cosmos and provided us with this platform. No, it is a series of rules and algorithms that are devised by human beings, and it, it is entirely it prioritizes some things. It calculates the exact number of seconds of milliseconds that is most optimal for you to look at your uh, refresh bar before it actually shows you a new notification to maximize time on site. All of these things are devised in a very very shrewd way by people who work in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. and you are being manipulated and I am being manipulated all the time. There's nothing nefarious about that. I'm not I'm not saying like the Russians are manipulating us. All I'm saying is all of this is an artifice that consists of a bunch of rules and those rules can be modified in order to take into account the fact that there are different motivations by some of the people who are using that platform versus others. Yeah. So there will be hallmarks, for example, that, that, that come through when a story about Hillary Clinton having killed somebody come, comes through, <laughs> right, and gets shared a lot. Sure. And, and mere sexiness of a headline does not have to dictate that it gets prioritized 
to, to the top of your feed. Facebook obviously has felt the heat since the election, maybe since a little bit before the election, and they've been hiring fact check teams. They've been talking about changing algorithms with respect to this. They're, they're engaged in behavior that, you know, a year ago, they're like, yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, 18 months ago, they're largely shrugging. They're more like me <laughs> on this, but now they feel the heat in ways uh, that I don't. And maybe Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, feeling like a responsible citizen who's running for president in 2020 or, or whatever. Uh, but what is your, in, in light of what you want, what is your assessment of how they have responded so far? Well, what I want is for them to respond to pressure from people like us and not pressure from people like senators or radical leftists who don't respect free speech. I mean, I think I think they do do that, though. And I, I don't know that I don't know that most citizens re respect free speech and, and not. I don't know that it's just radical leftists. Like there are various ways in which they both don't. But I think they are responding to us and. There no, I mean, I think things. they are. I actually, I actually yeah. think this this is a problem. This is a sort of a non-problem that is a, a consequence of the the fact that at the moment social media is the giraffe who's just been born, who's covered in blood, who's trying to stand up <laughs> in the in the on the savanna. Yeah, and it's not going to get eaten by the crocodile, but it'll have to find a way to walk and run. Uh, I just want you to keep extending this. I want to see how an, far Andy, it's and the and the giraffe that is called Mark Zuckerberg will grow into a beautiful, <laughs> long-necked creature with a lustrous mane and delightful teeth, well, and maybe I, a huge penis. <laughs> I'm just saying, we I, don't know what that giraffe will be. But uh, let's, I like, I like, I think, I think there are ways in which Facebook is responding to us. I do want to underscore what you just um, highlighted, Matt. The notion of tech companies showing up in Washington, D.C., like facing down all of these senators and Congress persons who have the ability to regulate them in pretty severe and dramatic ways um, if they can, in fact, convince voters that this is a thing that's worth doing. Um, they are terrified. Uh, the the This whole thing opens up with them consistently stating over and over again how much respect they have for the congressmen and the senators and how serious they understand the problem to be, a problem where someone spends less than $100,000, et cetera, et cetera, um, and is perhaps making ads and placing them online that it is not obvious have had any impact whatsoever on this particular election. But as Josh has stated, as you pointed out, perhaps there might be some impact later and it's worth paying attention to this in general. The people who they're talking to, who they're being grilled by, really consistently demonstrated that they, they don't have the competency to understand what it is Facebook does or Twitter or YouTube for that matter. Well, it's a system of types, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, this, there, there, are as, there are attributes of this that reminded me of uh, like the violent video game hearings or Y2K hearings for that matter. Um, and there's a sense in which both of those hearings I would regard as a hell of a lot more serious than these particular hearings. And it's both for the reasons I mentioned before with respect to Voters just simply not knowing a great deal. And for, for another reason that I'd add to it, which is whoever is creating this content and placing it online, whether they're paying for ads or not, um, the fact is that if I am creating messages and putting it online, it may be true or false. And I'm not certain how an algorithm will actually be able to make determinations about that sort of thing. And oh, I don't dude, know that with constant, the volume of postings, I mean, there are constant, they can uh, actually make determinations in algorithms. about that. I mean, you know, the, the, the target 
algorithm knows when you're pregnant before you do on the basis of your on uh, the of basis your of your shopping habits. habits. Sure, I mean, but I don't like know the are, truth. The truth and falsehood well, well, are, so, way, are so if, easily detected. Well, I think if, that's, if it's I think not that's now, it will be shortly. It will be shortly. And I some, mean, it will be. It will become clear when something is is being propagated from an offshore site that has all the hallmarks of something that is being manipulated in, uh, you know, for nefarious purposes. It's it's not that hard to figure out. Well, let me try it's to... It's hard for me to articulate, but it's not that hard <laughs> well, for the algorithm to figure it out. Well, let me try to pivot it a out. bit to, to something related, and it's not, it's not so far away from this. I mean, earlier this week, we also had these... Um, uh, the momentous news, and, and perhaps it's better if I let someone else uh, describe this. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with seismic breaking news in our politics lead. It's a landmark day. The United States of America versus three Trump campaign associates. A dramatic new phase of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and possible collusion by members of the Trump team. Today, two senior members of the Trump campaign team, including former campaign chair Paul Manafort, surrendered themselves to federal authorities, while we also learned of a third member of the campaign team who pleaded guilty. Very real steps in a grave law enforcement investigation, despite cries, including from the president himself, that there is nothing to investigate, that it's a witch hunt, that it's fake news, that we should be paying attention to this or to that, a chorus of empty and desperate cries, as it turns out. Empty, desperate cries, seismic, groundbreaking which parts of that are true or false? I don't know. Um, I think those are assessments that are fairly subjective. And I think most narratives include a great deal of in a great deal of subjectivity. In fact, all narratives include a great deal of subjectivity. And even in the way they're heard, there's a great deal of subjectivity. I won't say that Jake Tapper is lying when he says that this is seismic, um, but it's certainly to me like isn't particularly seismic and isn't a particularly big deal. Should Jake Tapper's video describing this developing, emerging situation with George Papadopoulos, who took a plea deal, um, who was a former Trump national security advisor during the uh, campaign, um, and Paul Manafort and his business partner, Rick Gates, who were both uh, indicted on something uh, related to a conspiracy against the United States, but mostly for things, not mostly, actually exclusively for things that are not directly related to the, the past election. So that's just a little bit of context and a weird, messy transition that maybe made sense to the people listening at home. But to bring these two stories together and to further hammer down on that point, if I didn't make it succinctly enough before, I wonder about the fact that there is a hell of a lot of subjectivity in the in the way that narratives are presented and the fact that it's so difficult for even us, I think, in many cases to agree on what is the appropriate way, the appropriate context in which to present these true facts about the world um, that we're describing in the context of a particular well, narrative. It's certainly true that between, Paul Manafort's been indicted. There's a difference know between policing adjectives and policing nouns and and facts and and you're policing seismic as an adjective i agree with seismic i think it is like there's there's the there's a part of the trump presidency that was up until monday and then there's monday going on there's there's people who worked on the campaign who are now have pled guilty to lying about 
their dealings with Russians uh, uh, during the campaign. That's that's a different state a, of play. A person, a person. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the figure of speech when you when you yeah. talk about. But yes, <laughs> but I, could, I could say that's a lie. It's fake news <laughs> that you just laid out there, Matt Welch. No, I mean it's it's not. Uh, but um, I mean, so I think that is seismic. But that, that's that's just that's uh, uh, the uh, that is not uh, the same thing as. You know, uh, Bill Clinton buried forty-three bodies in totally, the, the main uh, totally not the same thing. Airport, right? Right. I um, think there's, I think there's a challenge in trying to. It is, it is challenging to adjudicate fact from fiction in the easiest and simplest case when we're talking about Bill Clinton's forty dead bodies. Like there is a Snopes page that gets devoted to any one of these things. Like some person actually goes and does the analysis to determine whether or not this is true or fake. And I'm saying that beyond that, there is an entire universe of things that, in my own estimation, are likely degrading people's confidence in mainstream media outlets that are perhaps getting a bit excited about various stories and have been getting excited about various stories since last year. When, I mean, these, I think when you... the Russian stuff first broke back in, not first broke, but after the campaign, when this particular narrative was really gaining momentum, the immediate concern began to be the Trump campaign was in somehow in direct contact with the Putin regime and was helping to coordinate the timing of the release of these emails that were hacked from the DNC or perhaps was behind getting it done. Um, so direct collusion. And now, in many cases, the reporting has a lot to do with whether or not they were willing to take a meeting. The president was in a meeting, then candidate Donald Trump in a meeting with campaign advisors, including George Papadopoulos. He suggested meeting with Vladimir Putin, and the president said... He said he didn't rule it out, John. In fact, he didn't dismiss the idea, and according to uh, a source who was at the meeting, he actually did not say yes or no. Now, we do know from court documents uh, that Papadopoulos attended this meeting with then-candidate Trump March 31st, 2016, and according to the court documents, it said that when Papadopoulos introduced himself to the group, he stated in some in substance that he had connections that could help arrange a meeting with then candidate Trump and President Putin. Now, uh, the president, uh, the candidate Trump uh, made some remarks, but clearly left the idea open, according to the person in the room uh, who we talked to. Now, the White House uh, was asked about uh, this meeting earlier this week, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, in the aftermath of the revelation that Papadopoulos pled guilty to his connections and his efforts to set up these meetings uh, and his discussions with the FBI investigators. When Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about this, John, she said that the president did not recall specifics hmm. from this meeting, and the, and the White House refused uh, or did not uh, respond to further questions. Uh, about uh, what we now learned is, is then-candidate Trump uh, not refusing to rule out these mm -hmm. meeting between Putin and himself, something that Papadopoulos continued to push through the campaign season. Whether or not they had ruled out the possibility of taking a meeting. Wait a second. Just, the, orig just, the original wonders, denials, the, the original just denials, bit, the orig the original denials were uh -huh. that they had any contact whatsoever. Yeah. Now they're just saying, oh, the contact was innocent. Sure. So, I mean, and I, in fact, I, today, Jeff Sessions... The arrow of um, guilt is going in the opposite direction from what you're implying. Jeff Sessions today 
uh, remembered uh, a meeting that uh, previously under oath he had said that had not uh, taken place or he he said that he had a conversation, I think, with Papadopoulos. Right. In this case, this is the Papadopoulos um, meeting that's mentioned in the uh, in right. The, uh, in which, the which court documents. Uh, and, and this is this now has happened. Um, you know, not necessarily always under oath, not sure. necessarily in a serious uh, way, but at least in public statements, there is a pattern of behavior of uh, Trump related campaign people or officials who have um, said one thing and then that turned out not to be true and then alter their statements later. And this, that's it's worth it. And this is also I mean, I, I think, Camille, you're trying to judge the first day, literally the first day of results from the Mueller investigation was Monday. So the first day we know anything about it, to be honest. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and so judging that by it's 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 not uh, fulfilling, you know, the sweeping part of the narrative when all this first started. Well, sure. But it's also the first day. There's a lot of a lot of language in uh the court documents of like, you know, person of interest, senior campaign officials. There's language about um, how a pop, we have to seal Papadopoulos's uh, guilty plea because, uh, you know, publicizing it is going to jeopardize our ability to work with a cooperative witness and find more information. So I think the dude wore a wire. I mean, we're going to find out this is not the high watermark of what we learn about the Mueller investigation at all. It's not remotely going it, to be that isn't, at all. Isn't the claim. Isn't no, the, I mean, I will bet you, I will bet you everything I own. And as you know, the combined, that's worth at least $973. I, I'll take that. I bet. will bet I'll all take, of that. I'll take that bet. That I, I don't, we have not reached the high evidentiary mark of this. And to judge. But hey, that, but, 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 we, aren't we talking around the, hang on. That's not cool. the claim I was making. Yes, exactly. It's not the claim. It's not the claim that Camille was making. I understood, but I'm about to eviscerate him. Go for it. Yes. I understood the claim that you were making Camille to be that, that CNN is going overboard in beating up how important this particular event is. And I'm, the media, I'm, only, I'm only raising the question as to whether or not they are. No, you're I'm, not I'm raising saying, the question. You are, you're implicitly it's certainly the case that I leaning have my, on the scale. No, no, it's, I'm, it's obvious. No, no, I'm, I'm saying so obviously I have my I mean, perspective on this. Yeah. And I, I do think they're overstating it. But what I'm saying, I'm acknowledging that there's subjectivity there. And that someone is making a determination about whether or not let me let me let me do the same kind of bullshit move that I did before, which is to move away from the specifics uh-huh. uh, and and to go back to the big question the same way that we did with with Facebook. I, yeah. I, I, I care less about you know whether Russia paid one hundred fifty thousand dollars on Facebook than the bigger question of what social media means. And in this particular case, Jake Tapper goes on the air and he says, "This is the biggest." Thing you've ever seen. This is a huge bombshell. Seismic, right? unprecedented. It's seismic, definitely it's not fake news. Then we go back and we attack him for being too hysterical, but we're not actually addressing the underlying question. The underlying question is: Was there something there? Is there a there there? Right. And to me, the the question of like picking at the leaves of the question of uh, you know uh, we've got this tree that is. Uh, the whole media's attack on uh, the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Let's pluck a few leaves off it by saying that uh, it's inappropriate that Jake Tapper and, and CNN are making too much of a big deal out of this one angle. That doesn't get us anywhere on the question of whether or not there's actually a there there. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to have that conversation too. And, and I, well, One and, interesting question about whether there is a there there uh-huh. is, uh, and I think there is, there seems to be more now than there was, you know, three or four months ago on this, or at least there's more evidence of it than there was before, is it's not, as far as I know, illegal to take that meeting. If Trump decides to fly and meet with 
Putin in no. secret during the campaign. He could do that. It wouldn't even, but no it, one he, even. He could totally. Was do it even that. suggested that it would be in secret? I mean, candidates meet with world leaders right, all while the they're candidates I, on a routine the, basis. The communication between them, from what I uh, gather of it, it was like, oh, we, don't, we wouldn't want to make a big deal. Should we have like a, a quiet, discreet meeting, this kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah, it's supposed to go through certain channels that were not gone it, through. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to go through a certain sure. channel. It's just the way that this particular thing was being discussed. And I'm sure the Russians enjoyed uh, that, that type of. Uh, of a potential like subterfuge or whatever. Um, but like the, so we're closer to, we have an actual guilty plea from somebody who was in the Trump campaign regarding right. he the way they answered he perjured questions. himself, yes. Right? And so, and you know, ultimately, are we going to get just to a place where we're obstructing, if it's all perjury and obstruction of justice. And he also deleted some evidence so that, that he perjured himself and he went and deleted a bunch of emails yes. after the fact. So um, to be clear. Uh, you know, we could get to some pretty grotesque per, uh, obstructions of justice. And I and I, in fact, uh, you know, if I was uh, betting uh, more money and trying to make more money off Camille, uh, it would be that <laughs> we haven't, uh, you know, the, the, the real obstruction is yet to come. We'll, we'll, uh -huh. we'll find out when because I mean, Trump and the people around him are are congenitally not smart. And that's part of I'd say that. And that's right. actually been part of one of my worries about this going in is and and the, the news this week doesn't necessarily assuage this is like if you just go after the randos around Trump and his foreign policy people, um, you know, first of all, the Trumpism and Bannonism as a concept has so few people. Uh, so there's, just, there's not much personnel on that bench. Right. Uh, like uh, there's not a high quality foreign policy team. I was talking to our friend Buck, Buck Sexton about this, and he's much more in the Camille camp about poo pooing all this kind of stuff uh, these days. I'm not. Um, but uh, uh, he was acknowledging he met with some of the people or was uh, around people who knew people in the in the early stages of the foreign policy team formulation. And uh, I'm sorry, Buck, I'm ratting you out here, bro. But uh, whatever. Um, uh, he's like, wow. I, you know, that just not not quality people. I mean, Mike Flynn was notorious, just not a quality person. Sure. This guy Papadopoulos. Paul Manafort, like, not a quality person. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Daily Beast had a piece interviewing the guy as a Russian professor, and he was like, no, he's <laughs> terrible. He was terrible on this. So, like, uh, it's not hard to find a low-quality foreign policy rando making missteps. Sure. And so for, uh, for this investigation ultimately to have uh, ironclad, convincing, bipartisan credibility, it better be more than just getting perjury raps on shitty people. At some point, it has to demonstrate a connection between the Putin regime and the Trump administration in order for it to actually be the thing that was speculated about. And the question is, I don't know everything that is likely to happen in this particular case or that will happen in this case. I just don't, obviously. But so far, based on the things that have come out and the, the Mueller investigation and all of the, the prior uh, inquiries have been sieves and we've gotten a tremendous amount of information oh, no, from, have not. from a number of dude, different dude, sources. Just to interrupt you. Yeah, but why, just why, to interrupt why? you. If this was okay. a sieve, how do we get bro? Uh, Wait, explain oh, to people what a sieve is. Explain <laughs> to people what a sieve is. It's the thing that stuff drains through. No, there I There have mean, been leaks. There have been leaks consistently. We found out Perhaps, Monday uh -huh. that a guy was arrested July 27th. Yeah, the Papadopoulos thing. And then uh, pled out uh, on October 5th. That ain't a sieve. That By was, the way, can, and, can I just... Can and I the timing of that was a great one-two punch, I one, think that's one too. thing, but I mean, we knew the indictments were coming on Friday. We got the details later. That's, Perhaps that's not a sieve. That's from defense. We, that's were, not from prosecution, so as far as we can tell. So let me... Th 
just so we don't have to adjudicate that particular <laughs> claim, I'll back away from Civ. Let's just say that I'm wrong about Civ. Yeah. In either case, I don't know everything that's likely to come out, but looking at it right now, it does seem to me that much of the conversation around this story, the media narrative related to this story, because while I can't forecast the future, I can certainly talk about the now and the actual facts that are available to journalists. When I see the coverage and I hear the conversation be Donald Trump didn't rule out the meeting when it was suggested in the room and Jeff Sessions is under scrutiny because when someone raised the possibility of a meeting, he he suggested that they shouldn't have the meeting. In the context of a Senate hearing where you're being asked about collusion between the tr your campaign and the Russian government, if the conversation is about that and someone is asking you questions, you might answer the questions in a particular way when asked. And what I mean by that is without trying to be dishonest. If someone asks you a question about um, whether or not anyone in the campaign or you have had any contact with the Russians, if some clown suggested it in one of your campaign meetings, but it never happened, and in the meeting, in the room, Donald Trump was perhaps playing, what is that, Fruit Ninja game on his iPhone, and you, Jeff Sessions, said, we shouldn't take that meeting, and the meeting never happened, is that collusion? No, the answer is no. And, no, and I'm saying that, not, and it's and certainly true that there have I mean, been- Who's claiming that? No, no, I'm saying that there, I'm talking about the Jeff Sessions thing in particular. And it's Jeff certainly Sessions true that there have been other things like Donald- more about a question of memory. And I sure, would give but him I'm the benefit I'm saying there have been of, other things like Don Jr. Um, Don Jr. not mentioned in the doubt. adoption, like the adoption meeting. I think that is that is legitimately galling. He should be transparent about those things. Perhaps he forgot, I don't know. That is that is a problem. It's too much. It's a pattern. But, I don't. But I in don't either believe case, them. in either case, I, I get you, and you're free to not believe them. I'm saying that I'm not making a determination about that in particular. I'm narrowly looking at whether or not there's evidence that there was actual cooperation between the Trump but administration Camilla, and the Russians. I don't know. I certainly it. haven't they seen were, they, I don't see who's They were at least willing to have a meeting. That I mean, much has been demonstrated. They were not merely willing. That sounds like a, they, were just, saying, they were just sure. bystanders. They were standing on the side of the road. No, no. And, uh, when I say willing to no take that meeting, sure. who was going to come along. They and went then, and oh, got into Vladimir Putin. Good old Vlad just came along. But the Vladimir Putin meeting never happened. To pick them up. <laughs> and just yeah, yeah, look, it's such a coincidence. I'm just saying, Vladimir, you're being Putin, disingenuous. No, no, you I'm know not. You are. I'm really, you know I'm really, you are. No, no, they, this they, is. They, I'm, every, I'm certainly not every, being disingenuous. What every, I'm saying is, Camille, the Putin regime, the Putin regime meeting didn't happen, and the meeting with the adoption agency did happen, and we talked about that here on this podcast. And I, with all of you, agreed that lying and being dishonest about that is repugnant. Listen, also, to, kind to, of me, to, me, to me, to me, this, to me, this, all, this all comes down to my overarching kind of. Theory, which yeah. is there are too many people who are who are too extreme on both sides of uh, of politics at the moment, and it's very easy to attack the people on the other side for their failings. But what we're doing at the moment is you're so I, I feel like you're kind of stumbling into a briar patch where you're saying that because there is this hysteria over Russia, that means that everything that the Trump administration did with regard to Russia was innocent. No, I didn't I mean, say that. But I, I never made that. I haven't made that claim. But, but, but this is the vibe that I'm getting from you. No, for, no. For, my, for my, claim is, my claim is very different. It's the same claim I've Look, been making for, they, for a year, which is the Trump they, administration they, they, is they egregious were, in they so were, many ways. I don't need to get excited about that. 
That's the claim I'm well, making. You, you I, don't have to, but my point is that yeah. they, they, they were extremely eager uh-huh. to find any opportunity to dish shit on their opponent. Sure. Even if that meant uh, recruiting foreign operatives and dealing with a foreign power that the previous uh, candidate for that same political party, their presidential candidate had said, was the nation's number one enemy. Now, right. not, uh, that, that much is true, yeah. It, you know, it, it's not a great look. So, I mean, I understand that Absolutely. Y- you are completely justified in saying that a whole lot has been made out of a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's worth saying that the little bit isn't a little bit. It's a big and important it's little just bit. Different. Don't meet Rus- Ruskies about we've got <laughs> dirt on your opponent without beforehand going to the FBI and saying, I will wear a wire for you. And, right. I, and I think all that's, of right. that's, that's I mean, really these are simple. That's, that's, no, no, the these, are, simple. these are actually fair points. I agree that they're simple. That is the difference between believing that there is an impeachable offense, believing that there is a grand conspiracy, believing that what is happening here is secret meetings with Russia. And it's I'm Trump saying, and I'm not giving conspiracy. you, and I'm it's not, and that's what I'm saying. I'm not giving you, I'm not giving you that this doesn't matter. I'm giving you, this certainly doesn't matter in the way that many people seem to believe it matters to the extent it matters. I would grant that it matters in the way that you're well, both saying. Where does that get us, Camille? That, that, well, that, that, that's kind of a sort of Fox News well, no, like, no. What like talking us, point where it's well, just that's like, just it. if well, I this, stop, is, this is not that important, yeah. so therefore we have to ignore it. If I stop there, that would be a Fox News talking point. But I proceed further from that, f- further than that. And I proceed to there are very serious things that the Trump administration is engaged in from a foreign policy standpoint, from a domestic policy standpoint, that we are not talking about or paying very close attention no, we to also have because to pay we get hysterical to the, to the about the small of whether or not it was whether or not a foreign power that is antagonistic towards the interests of the United States uh-huh. was complicit in getting this president elected. And, I mean, and I'm saying that you know, that is we, a question we don't, we don't we want can, to go overboard. No, but, and that's but, a question we can address, but, it, but that's it, not it, a doesn't, dip- it doesn't help to just jangle the keys or no, you know, no, no, the no. laser pointer for the cat and say, look, yeah. he's doing lots of other things and I'm a good guy because uh, I also I, I oppose what he's doing abroad militarily. Yeah. Therefore, we can ignore the way that he got elected. That's also that's still relevant. That's a fair relevant. question. It's a fair question. And I'm saying that there are two separate questions. There's the question of whether or not the Trump administration, the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians to try to get him elected. They work together. That is a separate question. And whether the Russians were actively working in the campaign in various ways to try and get Trump elected, that's a different question. And I'm saying on that latter latter question, the answer seems to be kind of, let me even give you yes. If they were doing it, however, at the expense of, say, $100,000 on Facebook, that is a pretty paltry effort, and it's not particularly convincing. It's also from 2015 to 2017, half of that money was spent after the election had already right, taken I, place. I, and I, I'm, I, and so, but, but I'm just- agree that that's my- I hear you, You're and not, I'm, but, I, but I'm doing this matter. to answer the question that Josh raised. I think it's a relevant question to ask. I also think it's important to keep that, the scope of that inquiry to, to contain it by the magnitude, by the significance, by the importance of the actual interference. There was nothing that took place in this particular, in the category of things we're discussing now, there's nothing that took place that would have actually swayed this election for Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. And there is not, in my estimation, tangible evidence that this was a a focused effort that anyone thought would actually result in the election of Donald Trump. There like is, that's 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 all Camille, I'm saying. There, there is there is nothing I 
hate more than a brilliant mind being dedicated to something that is uh, a silly distraction. So since you've said that this is a silly distraction, let's move on okay. to something else because Good. you are a brilliant mind. And so that. why are we talking about it? <laughs> well, we're talking about it because it is something that is being talked about and we, we deal right, with media but there's, narratives. But there's, a, there's, a way, there's a way of talking about it which serves to distract from uh, the, the underlying question. I think that's true. Question, right? yes. you know, the underlying question is, was there some kind of collusion that was deleterious to American democracy as a result of an, an interference with a, between a foreign power and a political campaign here in the US? And it's very easy to then say, say, well, uh, actually, these precise details of the accusations that are currently being made are uh, are inaccurate. Therefore, we can distract our attention from, I want to look over here at the uh, at, at all of these voice, just, to, just to be clear, like when you do the official <laughs> voice thing, it's kind of more British. It's British. Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the, the, the Brits. Brits. Yeah, the Brits. Oh, everyone hates Who yeah, doesn't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone hates the Brits. So, you know, I... I I just think when we talk about it kind of at our peril, it's worth actually talking about what's important, but it's yeah. but it's not worth talking about what's important in order to say we should be talking about these other things in order to not talk about totally agree. Russia. Totally yes. agree. Let's let so then let us proceed. Um perhaps to some of the events that have taken place uh over the course of the last few days. Actually, I guess Monday of this week here in New York, um there was a, a terrorist attack how far uh, was that from where you used to live so i believe it was on the other side of the island um i was closer to the fdr as i understand it this was on the Chelsea, yeah this was Chelsea, closer to closer to the tribeca side <laughs> um rather Matt, you're than speaking like someone who's never been to new york why don't you know where this was uh, i immediately I, recognized it <laughs> having lived in new york for you know 12 what? years i've only been for, i'm californian to the in my soul well so. the island the island narrows as you get further south um and this occurred near the financial district, close to the site of the World Trade Center. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with New York City, Tribeca is a suburb, a very wealthy um, suburb, not suburb, neighborhood, um, that is located right next to the financial district. I so appreciate I lived your use of the, word, of the word the suburb, city. though, because oh, in Australia... It kind of is. In Australia, suburb means neighborhood. And I also, oh, Matt, appreciate that. your use of the word pled instead of pleaded. Uh, Earlier, you said they, they pled guilty, yeah. but I, that's what we say in Australia, and that was God, very important. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. succumbing to Australian naming rules, which but is I, the worst. I like it. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. that's fine. Um, so this happened on actually Tuesday, um, 1031, um, and you know, I'm sitting in my house, I'm doing work, and I did not even realize that all of this had transpired until my wife sends me a text. Um, and initially the reports, you know, they, they kind of dribble in and you start to get a sense of what happened. A guy with a truck is hitting people. Some people are dead and he jumps out with guns. Um, as it turns out, he hit something like 19 people, killing eight uh, as of as of this count. Um, and finally crashed into a school bus, jumps out holding toy guns, then the NYPD eventually takes this man into custody. Um, he was an Uzbek immigrant who had taken advantage of a program back in 2010 uh, that allowed him to come into this country as a diversity immigration program, uh, which the president of the United States was quick to condemn the program uh, and blame it specifically uh, for this gentleman being allowed into the country. But as anyone who is listening will quickly note, 2010 and 2017 are different years. Um, mm, and that suggests mm. that the gentleman had been here for seven odd years before committing any 
egregious crime. But what he was doing before that was driving an Uber car, uh, which perhaps is the thing that uh, corrupted yeah. him or not. Um, there have been plenty of interesting conversations or debates around this attack. First, uh, with respect to his religious faith. Um, this is a guy who jumped out of a car and yelled, Allah is great, uh, or God is great. And there were initially well, conversations. Wait a second. Are you saying that yeah. Allah is, is God? But wait, he didn't yell God is great. He yelled Allahu Akbar. Right. But I think that's a, I think they translate to the same thing. Well, why are you translating it to sugar? Because I speak Camille? English. I'm not sugarcoating it. You're sugarcoating it by <laughs> implying that it's inappropriate well, this to is, say well, this that, is he was, that he was uh, Well, Josh has, Josh has actually demonstrated the first controversy. There are those who are upset that some journalists like Jake Tapper actually used the, or not Jake Tapper, but. Actually, it Jake was did, was. But, but it was also on the CNN Chiron as well that they had translated in that way. And there were others uh, who would come out and say, well, look, I say that every day and I don't go kill people. We shouldn't jump to conclusions yet uh, because they because well, we shouldn't he said jump that. to conclusions. But he did say it. Yeah. Context matters. Yeah, and I, mean, I think when it. you when you scream this is so ridiculous, yeah, when this you scream this is one of my one of my pet pet peeves, which is that uh, the, the instant that this happened, yeah. the number one response from people like Linda Sarsour and from uh, politically correct people all over the apologist spectrum was we mustn't demonize all Muslims. Yeah. Well, of course we mustn't demonize all Muslims. Is that your first response? Your first response is not, we have to care about the fact that eight people are dead and we have to make sure that we, are, we stand united against uh, crazy terrorists. Your first response is, don't blame us. Well, we wouldn't blame you if you didn't blow people up and drive cars into people. <laughs> and let's, let's, let's recall also, we discussed this, I think, on the show like um, a few months ago when Linda Sarsour deliberately used the word jihad uh, to describe her struggle against Donald Trump. And, you know, the, a lot of the right took the bait as, oh, she's talking about jihad. And, of course, the predictable response from her and a lot of her cohort was, what are you, ignorant? Jihad just means struggle. Mm. I mean, so does Mein Kampf, I think. It, means it does. <laughs> it's exactly. It's, it's it's right. I think that means my struggle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I have so many thoughts about this, but uh, allow me to articulate one. I was up in New Hampshire with my newborn babies mm -hmm. when this happened. And I've lived in New York for um, a dozen years. And so I am a, I've, I've, I'm a New Yorker as much as I'm in anything or my Voice might not sound like it, but I've lived here in my adult life for longer than I've lived in any other city, including Sydney. And I think I've earned my stripes, Damn having right. been here for more than 10 years. And I found it slightly unbecoming that the news was spending so much time. I mean, hour after hour after hour reporting on this Terror shock outrage in New York. Terrorism strikes New York City. And... Frankly, a dude got in a car and he drove into eight people. Horrible. Mm -hmm. Now, what's our response? Do we freak our, out every single time that that happens? Do we go wall-to-wall -wall coverage every time? On the one hand, I'm constantly accused by people who are apologists for uh, jihadist terrorism and Islamism of being an Islamophobe. 
because I'm not afraid to make a link between theological ideas and jihadism. On the other hand, every time something like this happens, I find myself in a bit of a pickle. Because I don't want to imply that this is a necessary result of Islam. It's obviously not. I have a bazillion Muslim friends. I love my Muslims. I don't think there should be anything uh, uh, that is done at a federal level or a legal level that impedes the rights of Muslims. But I think it's totally fatuous and disingenuous to respond to each of these scenarios with instantaneous protestations that has nothing to do with Islam. Mm -hmm. We're grappling with some kind of a global phenomenon that needs to be dealt with. And we're not dealing with it. And the low information voter in Lyon, in France, who sees trucks barreling into people and who knows that every time that truck door opens, the person who leaps out is going to be screaming Allahu Akbar. They're not going to be screaming something else in another language. Where does it get us as progressives, as liberals, as people who want harmony among races and religions and ethnicities to insist that there's no correlation between a religion, a set of ideas, and this kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. It discredits us. It makes us implausible. It makes us ridiculous. So I don't know how to deal with that, but I almost feel like with the small uh, kind of lone wolf attacks like New York was, the correct response from the media would be to essentially ignore it and treat it as a just a another daily part of life that we have to accept. I have said and, uh, uh, here and elsewhere um, so many bad things about Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. The only good thing about either of those two people is that they hate each other. And so that gives us at least a <laughs> bit of comedy. Um, and yet their response was actually in a pretty, you know, pro Josh Zepp's way. They walked together at the Halloween parade like three hours later yeah. in Greenwich Village. Like, yeah, because that's what we do in New York. And I, I, I almost cringe to say we in New York, but I've lived here for five years now. Um, and that's actually kind of the best way to do it um, rather than. And, and I think actually in, that is the real response. I mean, I was walking around my neighborhood, which is a, a Halloween destination neighborhood. Somehow it's become over the last few years. So, I mean, thank God, uh, you know, this guy was so stupid that on Halloween, he plotted this out for a year. He wanted the, the ISIS flag in his room. He, you know, he had uh, he had uh, the uh, statement in his truck um, that uh, that uh, uh, the Al Qaeda magazine always tells you to put when you're making a, a van killing there. Like he went for it. He was all he was all in. And like. If you're in a van and your goal is to kill that many people, uh, as many people as possible on mm -hmm. any day in New York City, and you choose Halloween, and you only get eight, like you're not trying. That's you what are not I trying. say. It I could, mean, yeah. it, it he was could have been on the like West Side as well. Kids. Just it could have been a lot of people, and you know, like go to Greenwich Village. I mean, there were there, during the parade. Uh, in the evening, he should yeah. have. I mean, he was an idiot. Although parades, uh, uh, NYPD, uh, you'll notice to any parade, uh, Thanksgiving block off the streets. They, and you can't I mean, drive they, down. yeah, uh, in direct response to Nice and to especially a lot of the French things, um, 
they have an incredibly uh, complicated series of barriers. And this is Lower Manhattan. Lower Manhattan is the most surveilled piece of real estate in the entire United States. It's not That's even close. Almost certainly true. Um, yeah, I mean, there's I, I cameras on absolutely everything, especially Camille when he's in the window doing that thing that he, that, thank God, he's <laughs> now know. in bed so no I one's know paying attention to about. him, especially the cops. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, no, it's, and, and, you know, New York is just lousy. And I mean that in a, in a good way, not a bad way with uh, like counterterrorism, FBI squads and all these kinds of things. Um, so the fact that he only got eight people uh, is, uh, is uh, I guess, a, a mitzvah out of all of this. Num- numerous, numerous indications that he uh, that he wasn't particularly good at this thing, uh, thankfully. But but Josh, I want to I mean, the point that you were making, I think, is a is a good one. Um, and talking about, you know, the best version of the argument the reason why many people respond to these attacks in this particular way, uh, in a defensive way, defending um, Islam broadly, is because there are people, and not you, obviously, but there are people who make blanket statements about how awful Islam is, about how Islam is fundamentally the problem. Give Josh another drink. and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's unlikely to come from him, even with another drink in him, um, knowing him as well as I do. Um, but once we've dealt with those people, I do I do agree with you that being able to traffic in facts beyond that point and be being able to say there does appear to be a particular challenge that we have to address with this particular faith. Can I make, and can I, can I make two can I make two important uh, distinctions? Please. One is ideas are different from race, ethnicity, uh, personhood. Kind of. Okay. I'll, I'll, no, I'll, I'll clarify well, in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in hearing what your yeah. kind of is. But there is a continuous obfuscation that takes place where, whereby people who want to be essentially apologists for a misogynistic, homophobic, uh, sexist status quo in the Muslim world use the, uh, the bludgeon mm-hmm. of racism or uh, uh, bigotry to attack anybody who disagrees with the ideas that Islam presents. Yeah. Right. And anytime you you query whether or not it's appropriate for a person to be excommunicated from all of their family and their community because they simply wanted to not be uh, a Muslim anymore, you're accused of being an Islamophobe, which then means that you're an ethnocentrist, which then means that you're um, you're a bigot and a sure. racist. Sure. Uh, without regard to the to the idea that there are ideas, there are ideas. I mean, look at the look at look at white people who have gone over to the Taliban. Obviously, those people are not. This is not racism to oppose John Walker Lind or whatever his name sure, was sure, who sure. went over to the Taliban. Yeah. Right? So that's one distinction that I think is worth making. That that it's possible to be critical of the tenets of Islam, of the belief that Muhammad flew to heaven on a winged horse and that jihad is the holiest thing that you can do without being prejudiced against people who happen to believe in Islam. Most certainly, yeah. And the other is a is a distinction about terrorism, which is we tend to get crazy about terrorism, right? I mean, even that word terrorism is a word that I, I've ceased using on my podcast, and I, I just don't think it's particularly useful. But I don't want that to imply that there's not a massive terrorist threat. For me, there is a massive terrorist threat, which is the possibility of the intersection between 21st century weapons uh, yeah. and 15th century ideology. Yeah. And the idea that a dirty bomb could go off in a city or even an actual bomb could go off, you know, if we got 
serious enough with North Korea, if they want, you know, if Pakistan wanted to sell something to somebody, we just don't know. But I think there is a a non-zero chance that a major Western city gets obliterated with millions of people being annihilated in the next 50 years. Not a likely chance. Yeah, non-zero. But a non-zero chance. Sure. There are people who would and, like to do that. Yeah. And I look at, yes, I look at, the, you know, earlier this week, this situation in New York, and the idea is we have to report it around the clock because this is a territory. New York on alert. America defends itself. New York strong and all this kind of bullshit. The reality is that was a lone wolf. So I think the important thing to, to, to be able to do is to differentiate between the local lone wolf attacks, which are just going to be a reality of life. I mean, let's just accept it. And, and let's not elevate those people to anything more than what they are, which is just mass murderer criminals. I mean, that's fine. People, people kill each other all the time. Don't you have the impression that that's kind of what we're doing? By we now, I mean the people, to quote... Uh, I guess the name my of your podcast. podcast. <laughs> we the people live, available on all good podcast networks. But no, I mean, actually, it feels like uh, in New York and elsewhere, people are kind of go about your daily life. Go about your daily life. Like yeah. you don't really alter too much stuff. I didn't didn't see a lot of people totally shaken to their core uh, by this. It's a big city. There's a lot of people. You can be no, but I mean, you know how many people died here <laughs> as a result of car accidents or. Drug overdoses yeah, or gunshots. I, I, I mean, it's I, I way kind of, more than that. Way I, recoil more than that against, I, I recoil against that uh, uh, comparison, uh, I, I think, because we're sort of denying human nature. If you have if, – if suddenly – there's uh, someone, people, you die, you're the poor Argentine bastards who came here, the, like, yeah, the five yeah. people for their high school reunion, the destination high school reunion, they get killed. Um, but anyone, um, if, if you show up in a place and you are killed by the bogey of some crazy terrorist, that's that like sends alerts to your brain that are worth listening to. That's different than just electrocuting yourself in the bathtub, right? Like, like it's the, I, I don't, I, I don't think it's, it's particularly no, I understand. I'm not saying Clarifying. that we shouldn't report it. I'm just saying maybe we shouldn't report it for seven hours straight on the and news. And I just think that most people don't read the news. Or don't people don't watch the news? I mean, at, at its height, you know, what's the most popular cable news program now? Is it Tucker Carlson? Is it Rachel Maddow? No, no. I'm not more talking than... about cable. I'm just talking about like network news. Which but Josh, I mean, still, Josh, you know, I mean tens it, of millions of people. It was. I mean, watch. it was a big story. It was you know right next to the World Trade Center, and that it was only seven hours, and that we didn't impose martial law like what was done in Boston a few years ago oh. is kind of a good development in the positive direction of not panicking over terrorism. Wouldn't you, you know, kind of concede that? On the one hand, I think it's highly likely that we will be constantly buffeted by the kinds of events that happened in New York last week. Uh, uh -huh. You know, and that is just a reality of life just as mass shootings are a reality of life Nobody in, wants in the to hear United that. States. Right? Yeah, I agree with you, but and, no one cares. And, and, no and I think we should just ignore that. that and just uh, we should behave the way that the Brits did when the Irish, when the IRA was uh, bombing uh, their cities. We should behave the way that the Israelis did when the, they were getting Palestinian bombings. I'm not casting any kind of moral equivalence between, the, between any of those different things. I'm just saying that it's possible to get on with life and to accept that there are occasional uh, uh, snafus. What I find odd is that that is then coupled with an insistence that there is no such thing as jihad because, look, crazy people will do whatever is crazy. Uh, they'll find any reason to do it. And so we don't have to worry about the, all of this anti-Muslim resentment mm -hmm. when in actual fact, I think there is a genuine threat that we're not paying attention to, 
which is mega terrorism. I, I feel like we're in a stage pre 9-11 where we're getting hysterical about things about lone wolf attacks. And we're not paying nearly enough attention to the long game of there potentially being a dirty bomb or a nuke or something like that. So my sort of attitude is mm-hmm. stop paying attention to all of this stuff. Regard the the background level of some disenfranchised, disenchanted dude who happens to not be cool with his life going out and doing something crazy because he found ISIS on the internet. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's going to happen. But the coordinated kind of institutionalized uh, system of uh, global jihad it seems like we're not willing to recognize that because to recognize that would be to imply that there is something in Islam that is toxic. I, I don't. Are we not recognizing that? I mean, there's a whole U.S. foreign policy that seems to be that seems to be focused on those bigger cataclysmic events that could happen. I don't imagine that the specific reason that we're in, say, Syria every part of Africa and everywhere else around the world right now carrying on a conflict is narrowly because they think there might be these sort of small scale attacks that happen every no, no, couple not, of months not, and they can yeah, stop Of course that, not. Not, right? not. Not at the level of, I, uh, of, of uh, sure, government intelligence. I think fundamentally they're, they're focused but, but on the big I'm, things. I'm talking and about the media. Can, I'm talking about us. I'm talking yeah, about yeah. human beings. And I'm I, talking about citizens. And I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point too. I, and I don't know if the reason why people are focused on the the immediate event that just happened down the street, the possibility that the truck could come driving through. Um, I don't know if they're focused on that narrowly or even if journalists are focused on that narrowly versus this bigger, broader problem because of ideological biases or the fear of discrediting an ideology by focusing on this broader phenomena. I, I mean, it might just be proximity. It might just be the sensibility that you know, a 9-11 kind of event just doesn't happen that frequently. It could, and I'm afraid of that. But what I think about more often when, like, my wife leaves and I know she's wandering around downtown is some other lunatic in a car doing something. No, of course. I, I, mean, I suspect uh, that might be but, but, the reason. But, that, but, that's but that just, doesn't mean that we shouldn't. But that's just irrational human, yeah. your brain just pinging yeah. nonsense at but that yourself. Doesn't, like but when I'm, you get on a plane and you're with afraid you of in general. But I do agree with you in general that there's something to be said for putting these risks into context. And I do think that it feels a lot like the point I was trying to make with respect to the the other categories of problem that are being covered related to the Russia investigation. It's certainly possible that certain bad things have happened. It's possible that particular relationships exist. Um, it's possible that one could influence the outcome of an, of an election by doing this bad thing. But those risks to me, seem relatively small and perhaps even their importance seems relatively small compared to the broader problem of voters, generally speaking, don't know a great deal about the complicated things that they're weighing in on, um, that generally speaking, when it comes time for you know an election, it's not that they're 
reading fake news all the time. It's that they're not reading the news at all. Well, don't try to do a bait and switch. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm actually well, those, trying to. I'm trying. I really am trying no to demonstrate that there's, there's no solution to your ignorant voter thesis. I don't know that there's any solution to people who are radicalized in one way or another and find no. There, and decide there, to there, there, there is a sol- there is a solution to the way that we think about terrorism. There is a solution to the way that we recontextualize lone wolves versus the the actual existential threats that we face. How do you operationalize that? Because I think you, it's people's lizards, lizard brains, like they're responding to these threats in ways that are quasi rational, but they don't really correspond to the actual I mean, probabilistic risk. The media is a, is a start, right? But I, I, mean, I don't you, know you that don't, we can even change that. Seven hours of, uh, of Breaking news from downtown Manhattan. We've got Chuck on the scene. What's happening, Chuck? More people are walking their dogs in the venue where previously a, a car mowed down innocent victims. Well, how do you fix Let's that? Let's talk to this lady. What? How did you feel about seeing innocents being uh, mowed down? I was very sad. I, I, who would have thought that a truck would come? And you know, it's just not something you expect to see on Twenty Seventh Street and Eleventh Avenue. Back to you in the studio, Chuck. Like, don't do that. Can you fix that? Do do, and I agree with you, but there is an incentive for them to do that. Your first problem is they're people too. The question: How do you fix it? Can yeah, you know? is that wrong? Sure. I shouldn't ask how to fix it. Um, it implies that there is, if you just get the right tool, um, and you just pound it on the right thing, yeah. then something goes away. And I think there's something to be said about the ebb and flow of stoic behavior, as in the case of other people who've absorbed terrorism, but also something else which doesn't get talked about because it's not a kind of, kind of you know, uh, government solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that I think is real, especially when we think in terms of lone wolf, homegrown, uh, they could be immigrants, they could be, you know, second generation terrorists, which is something we didn't see a lot of until kind of semi-recently mm-hmm. the, the 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 median guy who's going to get in the van and rent it and drive it through a, a crowd or to shoot up his co-workers in san bernardino or whatever this is kind of new this feels more european than american um, because america previously has is this, this awesome assimilation machine right people live here they don't want to shoot stuff up they they, they become part of the thing that we do, which right. is not to shoot each other. Right. I mean, we shoot each other about other stuff, but like, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but like, uh, you know, uh, we're, we don't become uh, violently uh, aligned against this country. We are absorbed into it. Um, I don't know if w- whether it's uh, my own, you know, creeping age or whatever uh, here now, but I think there's something to be said about how particularly the profile of like the, the loser 27 year old hmm. here in America right now, the loser 27-year-old, whether an immigrant or a non-immigrant, um, has less of a, kind of a civic society, associational society, just groups, things, churches it can be. It can be, yeah. it can be non-churches too. Yeah. There's so less of this fabric of society. This is a point that George W. Bush made in his speech from the other week uh, that I completely agree with. Um, uh, he put it uh, in like, you know, as we look to renew, whatever, stop looking up from the top. It's going to happen in your community. It's going to happen in your church. You have to lend dignity on a local kind of little platoons level. That level has been a very crucial part of our assimilation machine. But a friend of mine, Chris Ziegler McPherson, wrote a book, uh, 
five years or so uh, ago called the Americanization of the States that was all about um, how the messy job of assimilating all of the Ellis Island immigrants here didn't come because we had like an immigration office that yeah. made it happen. Uh, and it, these are the rules. You'll do it. Uh, no, it, it became uh, it was churches. It was ethnic groups. It was these kind of uh, civic society organizations that found ways to seed people here, to seed people there. Um, and it was a very kind of robust response to a high immigration period. Uh I don't know whether we have that right now. And, uh, you know, to, I don't want to throw us into too much of a French goodbye situation where at the end of the show, we're talking about something complex that requires a whole lot of talk. We've been doing but, it the whole time. Uh, but we've been doing it the whole time. <laughs> Donald Trump goes off after the diversity visa. I suspect in part because it's called diversity visa. And so it's, you know, political correctness run amok, mm -hmm. even though the diversity visa the first year when it was under operation after being signed into law by George H.W. Bush, 93% of the people who came here on it were from Europe. The diversity can, visa... Can, can, you, can you explain what the diversity visa is? Briefly, my uh, uh, canned version is it was New York, uh, Italian, and uh, 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 Irish uh, politicians feeling like the new the Immigration Act that was passed in 1965 was uh, creating kind of networks of immigration that were too uh, centered in Latin America and in Asia. And suddenly, uh, New York found itself with a lot of illegal immigrant Irish and Italians and like, hey, we need to legalize these people and we need to like create a, because they had, those networks had kind of dried up, right? There weren't these, you didn't have like these waves of mass unskilled Irish and Italians anymore. You just had some sort of leftovers and they felt like, hey, look, you know, our usual Irish and Italian immigrants is not happening anymore. We need to create this diversity visa, which is all the world from countries that are not providing America with a lot of of immigrants in any given year. I forget what the threshold is, but it's small. So all of you can kind of compete for that um, for a 50,000 slots a year. The first uh, the first year or uh, or two is like 40 percent Irish people. You know, it was it really was New York based. They wanted to do it. They wanted to make this more European, if anything. And it became over time as we just ran out of poor Europeans uh, at some point, uh, it became more African. And well, and I elsewhere. guess more of them were just uh, getting regular visas. It, it's actually inter very interesting for me to hear you do, characterize it that way, because I, my country is uh, if not the number one, then very close to the number one uh, highest recipient of the diversity visa of all countries in the world That's per capita. Australia. Yeah, because the diversity visa, which is only something that Americans call it, outside of America, it's called the green card lottery. Mm -hmm. So there's a lottery. I mean, America has all kinds of different visas that you can come in on, right? Every country has... I know that Americans think that it's easy to come into this country. Trust me, as a person who has come into this country, it is not easy at all. It is very, 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 very difficult. And there are huge hoops that you have to go through. And there are a bazillion different visas that you could potentially apply for. But if you want to exclude yourself from all of that, if you just want to like, if you want to be the land of the free and the home of the brave, then one thing that you might do as a country is say, even if you can't qualify for any of our many, 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 many dozens of visa categories, we're going to give you a Hunger Games lottery, <laughs> and here is your exactly right. and 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 people who come from a country that has a very very low immigration rate to the United States, we're just going to throw it out there, and there's it's literally literally a lottery. There is a six week window, 
at the end of each year. I think it's in October, maybe September. And you can go online and you enter your information and it's a lottery. It is literally a Hunger Games style lottery. And you know what? Because Australia has low immigration to the United States and because Australia is part of a portion of the world that is carved out, which I think is like the Asia Pacific zone or something, so it doesn't have as much competition from a bunch of other countries that have a lot of poor people in it. Um, I know eight people who've won the US visa lottery. If you apply every year as an Australian, then in my experience, odds are after eight, nine, 10 years, you will get a green card just out of just pulling it out of a hat. That makes me think, is this an ethical system? It has been under every every comprehensive immigration reform proposal, including the Gang of Eight, the most recent one, they've nixed it. Mm -hmm. They're like, we don't want this. Um, For a variety of reasons, I think some good and some bad. The bad is that um, it continues a a constant bias against low-skilled immigrants. We have this unrealistic idea that we should have just like, you know, 10,000 farm workers from Mexico a year. That's it. No more uh, uh, than that, which is ridiculous. Um, But I think part of it, this gets back to my sort of associations idea, uh, makes a little bit of sense, not necessarily from Australia, but if you're pulling randos from Turk Shittistan um, at any given any given time where they don't have networks of people here, they don't have communities to assimilate to, that's kind of the whole point of this thing. It's a worldwide lottery of mm. low immigration to the U.S. pathway kind of countries. I'm in general for wildly increasing exponentially or, you know, by multiples, increasing the number of legal immigrants we take a year. I think that would almost... Uh, get rid of our illegal immigrant problem as long as we didn't make it too, uh, you know, heavily regulated and this kind of stuff. However, if you are, you can't take every single person who wants to come in. It's a million people a year who who apply for this lottery and it's 50,000 people who get in. Um, this lottery system says that if you come from a country that doesn't have many immigrants, you can come in here. That means you're going to be more of a lone wolf. That's actually what it means. You are, you met not a lone terrorist wolf, almost Statistically, the chances of you becoming a lone terrorist wolf are almost infinitesimal. But who are the people that are more likely to be marooned? Not necessarily Australians. They can, you know, speak. They can they they can order a Fosters at the local. Um, I mean, we actually don't need the visa anymore because we have a special visa class that was actually carved out for us by George W. Bush as a thank you for for joining the Iraq War. Oh, really? Literally, yeah, it's a pirate it's called visa? an E three. It's called <laughs> it's called an E three visa, and uh, it's literally just. In the in the in the U.S. immigration code now, there is a visa class which is only available to Australians, which hmm. was a handshake as a result of joining the Iraq War. But that's that's all by the by. Well done. My point would simply be, isn't it? Look, maybe I just come from a country that is surrounded by ocean. Maybe I have the good fortune of not having uh, starving hordes on our border who can pour across. Maybe I am corrupted by my socialist sensibilities as a result of living in a country that is less capitalist than the United States. But it strikes me as a little bit odd that the US has this weird conflation between granting citizenship to people who wandered across the border in search of farm work and being pro-immigrant. I am very, very pro-immigrant. I want massive levels of immigration into Australia and the United States and all kinds of Western countries. 
But the idea in the United States that that means that I have to think that people who are here illegally, yes, illegally, not undocumented, they didn't accidentally misplace their documents. They don't have documents. They weren't like, oh, I, they were in my trousers, but I put them in the wash and, now, and the laundromat lost my documents. They came across illegally, which is fine. They're allowed to come across illegally. Great. It's against the law, but whatever. That's only half of them come across illegally. Half of them overstay legal visas, as yes, you well know. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in any given year when they say that, like, a certain number of people have become, have entered the United States as permanent residents, half of those people were already here and they just had a change on their status. Mm-hmm. I know that because mm-hmm. I'm one of them. So I don't mean to dismiss the legitimate concerns of people who care about people who are in this country as undocumented workers, but I do want to point out this whole kind of kabuki dance and charade that we have going on about how you can only be pro-immigration if -hmm. you are also Mm -hmm. pro-granting full citizenship to people who intentionally broke the law, yes, within the context of a, a system that is screwed up and screwy. But for me, I would much rather find some kind of accommodation where it's not a, a country has borders. It's not legitimate to cross the country's borders to get some work and then go back and go back and forth. No, you need to get a visa. And I want America to have a lot more Bangladeshis. I want America to have a lot more Burmese. I want America to have a lot more Uzbekis. I don't think it's, I don't understand as a foreigner why there's this imperative to think that America has to have the maximum possible number of illegal Mexicans and Hondurans at the expense of people who could be taken from other countries in the world, which a smart and vibrant and welcoming internationalist Western democracy might want to have. What I, I, I largely agree with you. The, the, I mean, I don't know if anyone wakes up in the morning saying we need more Hondurans, but it's just the, 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 the fact of the map. Democrats in all comprehensive immigration reform talk over the last 20 years have ruled out guest workers entirely. Um, because they think this is a second-class citizenship situation. They'll be abused. It'll be the Bracero program. Yeah, so don't allow that and and, (coughs) and punish uh, employers who illegally hire people. Yeah, well, I mean, that's not as easy as it it sounds. Well, it's pretty easy. Other countries manage it all the time. Australia does it. I mean, Australia has... I don't know if, if the world wants to follow Australia's immigration policies or politics necessarily, generally speaking, and, and there's just more people. We have borders that don't What have I'm saying is it's possible. It, it, po- poss- possible, perhaps with a, with a bit of an asterisk. I mean, there's, what's the total number of illegal immigrants in the United States now? 11 point something million. 11 point something million. I'm, it's been stable for seven, eight years. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you do. About that. And I don't I don't even know. I certainly don't think that it doesn't sound equitable or fair to me to to try or even sensible to try and push most of those people out. No, not at all. And that's not not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that in the future, controlling the border in the future, in in the future, there there, might might require a a wall or a fence. Well, yes, the problem which, is, I'm to, which I'm actually totally in support of. Yeah, I, the, I, th- I, th- I think fence, a Trumpian wall is, is idiotic, mm-hmm. but securing the border and actually knowing who is coming in and out of the country yeah. is, is utterly common sense. I just, But my suspicion, though, is that if one were to repair the system, considering the net rates of illegal immigration at this point don't seem to be particularly high um, if they're positive at all at this stage, 
fixing the immigration system and making it possible for people to, yeah, come from that closer border, um, as well as come from these further afield places, probably lowers overall illegal immigration and makes it creates less of an incentive for someone to come here and be here illegally and take on all of the added costs of existing in the United States as an illegal immigrant. So I, I mean, right. I think that well, might well, be... Don't you want to decrease illegal immigration? Yeah, and I'm saying that fixing the legal immigration system, making it more efficient, making it something that's more bigger. intelligible and accessible, and make yeah, it. bigger, um, that I think that would actually probably achieve much of the objective that you just laid out. Um, and yeah, building, I, building the wall actually uh, hurts that fluidity because it, it, it says it makes you pay more for the black market coyote to get you in, but also it leads to this mentality that once I'm in, I'm in, that's it. That's all I wanted to do. Hmm. That's not how it used to be. People would flow in and out that's right. based yes, on that's work. True. And so when, when you build that wall, you're like, okay, you got to flow in, and now it's a path, everything's a path to citizenship. There are Look, plenty uh, of people. The, well, the, the one thing that Americans have to give up if they actually want uh, a coherent immigration policy is – that kind of guest worker, farm worker, temporary labour. Uh, it is it is a reality that in Australia, an orange costs more than an orange does in California because we actually have people who are legally employed to pick oranges. So if you want to have a systematic uh, immigration policy that makes sense, that is internally coherent, you're going to have to pay an extra nickel for your orange. I don't. I don't know if that would actually prevent people from coming here illegally, even if there were the wall. I mean, I, I just suspect that most of those things would probably be uh, pretty ineffective and inefficient in certain ways. But I, I appreciate the point that's being... No, what I'm saying is if, there was an, if the agricultural company yeah. got fined and its executives went to jail as a result of it hiring uh, undocumented workers... Right then you would have to pay more for oranges because yes. oranges would yeah, cost yeah, more to pick. My wife once did, back when she was still doing um, more journalism than investigative work, uh, did a, a piece on a, uh, uh, I think, a, a Mexican-American, but a Latino uh, farm worker because of some of these crackdowns and because of the cost of things, he was uh, training robots how to pick oranges in the fields in the Central Valley. So, like, whenever you uh, make stuff more expensive, could be next. Yeah. You, you get the robots. I want to pull back from this. I'll quickly um, uh, clarify a point I made earlier when I was saying that the difference between race and, um, like, say, a religious belief, a set of, of ideas, um, that race is often very similar to that. What I mean is that it's certainly true that one can be bigoted against a race without respect for whether or not there are shared ideas and values between these people. Just the grotesque, crude belief that whiteness is superior to blackness, or to put it another way, um, as some other folks who we've talked about on this podcast would put it, that blackness is superior to whiteness. Case closed. I hate those people. We should get rid of them. We should live separately. That's, that's one thing. But race is not the sort of concrete, particular biological thing that some people presume it to be. Oftentimes, it does boil down to a set of shared beliefs and ideal in ideology, um, and I think that is certainly true of blackness in America in a way that it is not necessarily true of other racial identities. There are coherent values that are shared. They're not universal in the same way that certain things 
only certain things are universal about being a, a person who identifies as or believes in Islam or believes in Christianity. Being someone who is affirmatively black actually means something to most people. And perhaps there are these smaller concentric circles of other things that they believe. Um, so I would say that in a way there are identities and values there. There are values there that make up the identity and in many respects, some of the outcomes that we observe when social scientists come and they do, like say, surveys to try and tease out what is creating, say, disparities in hiring or disparities in education or income or anything else, oftentimes the presumption is that, well, if we control for these factors, the outcomes ought to be the same because these are basically the same people. Um, maybe there might be some underlying things there that Make but wait, are you saying that that, would be, that that would be true for Muslims? No, no, I'm I'm making the point that I'm are making you? is that they're the narrow point I'm trying to make, perhaps not well because of the Hendrix is, <laughs> is one glass. It's powerful, and I haven't really eaten dinner. The narrow point I'm trying to make is that race can be a set of ideological convictions rather than simply this. Yes, I mean, I think it that, mostly that is. This is. is the great fiction in America. But that's Americans what, don't understand uh -huh. that, that what they think is race is not race. Yeah. What they think is is race is kind of an ethnic kind of cultural set of ideas about communities. In some in because, some cases. But but when we talk about whiteness in this country, I, I do think that we are generalizing even beyond that sense of community because there isn't one amongst white people, broadly speaking. There aren't shared values among white people, broadly speaking, the way there are shared values, a shared identity amongst black people, broadly speaking. Same thing as Facebook. We're just so big that it's hard to manipulate with that, Russian money. That could be, that could be what it is. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't, there are, there is a small subset of people who would say things like white pride and white power, and they would talk about their, the beautifulness of their whiteness. There are great many people who would talk about black pride and black power. And there are reasons for that. And they're complicated and nuanced and understandable in many cases. That doesn't mean mm. it's a desirable outcome, but they're understandable. Um, but there are also consequences. There are consequences for a population of people believing that under most circumstances, they are under unique scrutiny because of their race. Just the belief alone is the sort of thing that might have tangible consequences. Um, and I can, I can, sort of leave it there um, and no one else is responsible to, to push back. I, I'm just going to presume for the record that everyone in the room disagrees with me and only I have those reprehensible views. They are mine. No, mine I, coming from you. Uh, I mean, I basically yeah. agree with you. And, and uh, I must say the experience of living in the United States over the past sort of four or five years uh, in contrast to the four or five years prior to that and certainly in contrast to the four or five years prior to that in Australia has been one of uh, enormous self-consciousness and uh, stigmatism and kind of uh, groupthink when it comes to race and ethnic communities. It, it, there is nothing productive from my perspective about the current narrative around identity politics. We are spending way too much time focusing on our differences, way too much time policing what we ought to be saying. And I grew up in a in a very, very liberal and left-wing progressive hippie uh, environment in, in Sydney. And I'm not going to claim that Australia is non-racist, that we didn't exterminate the Aborigines, that there aren't all kinds of things that we have to pay penance for. But I will say 
that not having the legacy of slavery and not having the legacy of Jim Crow and so on, just uh, simply being a uh, an extremely multicultural country. And may I say, Australia is the one of the most multicultural countries in the world. Americans like to think of America as being the great melting pot. It's actually not very, very much. A far larger proportion of the United States goes back many, many generations than does the population of Canada or Australia or New Zealand. If you look at, for example, the, the most international cities in the world, judged by which uh, the proportion of the population whose parents were born abroad, number one is like Dubai, which is just itinerant, so that's not really a city. I think number two is Toronto, and number three is Sydney, and number four is Melbourne. I mean, America comes wow. quite, a, quite a good way down the list. America wow. is not the melting pot that you think that it is. It's a melting pot of like, I'm Italian! <laughs> well, yeah, but your parents, you know, your parents were here and your grandparents were here and your great-grandparents were here. You say that you're Italian because you like the idea of the melting pot. So it's, it's, that is all just simply a background to say, when I was raised, we had people from Myanmar and Burma and Sri Lanka and uh, Nigeria who were all in my class. And the, the what was drilled into me from a very early age was everyone is Australian. They are all your equal. You know, you don't pay attention to their skin color or to their background. Uh, you just treat them as another individual and don't worry about it. And it was only once I got to America that I was told that that attitude is actually offensive because I'm disrespecting the lived experiences and the cultures of the people who I'm mm -hmm. communicating with mm -hmm. if I'm treating them as simply another person and even rather if, than a representative you, of yeah. a beautiful and, and cherished uh, people. Yeah. And so now I'm like, you know what? I kind of like the earlier version <laughs> well, where, even, where we're just human beings. But it's even to believe that that is an achievable thing is part of the problem. The belief that that is achievable what, is... Uh, our that, being individuals, yes, you mean? Yeah. The belief that you can escape your whiteness, your privilege, is actually part of the problem. It is inherently racist to believe that. Because well, you're, look, you're, you're ignoring. I, I, I have the, been that is so the, I've been so inculcated by this supremacy. culture that Excuse I actually me. do believe that it is impossible for me to escape my whiteness and my privilege. I really do believe that. I, I, I really do believe that I am just stewing in a sense. Of, <laughs> I, no, but I mean, I, I actually genuinely do believe that. that yeah. I, that I that there are there is a whole sphere of experience yeah, that you I'm should completely stop unaware that. of. Yeah. Um, and I, but I think that's probably true, I, right? But I, but I think that one can believe that uh -huh. and also believe that every person who I meet is an individual who is going to be judged by me on the merits of their intellect and 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 their character. I don't know if you can have both of those things. Right I don't know if you really? can have both of those things. Maybe not. Um, we've we've gone longer than anticipated Let's and do. we've Let's stayed for a while um josh for the purposes of podcasts my okay. podcast we the people live okay. one of the greatest podcasts in america hashtag we the people all one word okay live a separate word it's uh hosted on panoply which is uh the uh, you know slate's uh podcast network so find it there follow me at josh zepps j-o-s-h-z-e-p-p-s and what more could a person want that, I'm, I don't know why they would want more than that. Um, <laughs> Anthony Fisher, before we punch out of here, some idiot wrote something. Are you aware of anything? Yeah, I got, I got, I got a real idiot, and, I, and I've, I've been finding uh, 
I've been trending towards academia lately, but it's not my fault because they get platforms in the New York Times op-ed page. And so this, this is Tim Wu, Columbia Law professor, author of The Attention Merchants, The Epic Struggle to Get Inside Our Heads. Now, I, I don't want to blame him for the headline because we all know that, you know, writers don't often get to pick their headlines. But the headline is How Twitter Killed the First Amendment. Mm. And uh, basically, he makes an argument, um, and you can check yourself that my paraphrasing is correct, that because Russia has infiltrated our government and because Trump harasses journalists using his Twitter feed, that the First Amendment is obsolete, that um, he actually uh, calls the phrase, more speech is always better, a sophomoric premise. And says that the current state of chaos is um, not what the First Amendment intended. Uh, And he also amazingly uh, makes the argument that the First Amendment was basically completely ignored until the 1920s, which basically totally erases uh, the existence of Frederick Douglass. Um, So, yeah, this is a mess of a terribly argued piece by a well-respected Columbia law professor in The New York Times, Tim Wu, How Twitter Killed the First Amendment. How do you spell his last name so I know to avoid him? W-U. Thank you. And that's all I got. Great. Boom. Or not great. Terrible. Um, Well... Gentlemen, this has been uh, a delightful experience. It's sometimes at some points they feel a little uh, unsafe, um, but it's probably the fact that we started drinking immediately and I immediately felt drunk. And I also met Welch brought a gun, which makes me feel unsafe. I mean, he, yeah, so firearms, alcohol, an armed society is a polite society, especially in a very small podcasting booth. And good fences make good neighbors. Exactly wrong. Goodbye. We know of new methods of attack.